Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, eat out, take out, cook at home. The dilemmas facing Australia's cafes, restaurants, bars and hotels as people, except those poor Victorians, get back into the swing of getting out and about. It's great to have your company for another episode of the Money Minutes. And look, I want you to stop and just think for a moment about the industries most greatly affected by this coronavirus. There's, well, international education, of course. Overseas airlines, there's airports, hotels and tourism operators, for sure. There's cruise lines and travel agents, yes. Now, these are the obvious ones, I guess. But there are some you might not have considered, like, say, oil companies. Now, they've been hit because of plunging oil prices caused by the lack of travel as a result of the virus. Now, in the early days of the virus, the Melbourne University and the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia survey that they do, it's better known as the Hilda survey, identified some of those industries that I've named as being most affected. Hospitality, air travel, tourism, creative arts, sports and recreation. It also said there were three and a half million workers, so that's around 28% of total workers in those categories most affected. They're the ones largely that would have been on the JobKeeper program. The secondary industries that Hilda identified though were store-based retail, tertiary education, mechanics and motor vehicle retailing. Now curiously, as I've talked about before here, motor retailing has been kind of weird. The real problem now is for detailers to get enough new stock It's not a lack of demand for cars that's causing them problems. Second-hand car prices have gone through the roof. People stuck at home, but being able to travel within their own state have gone for it, big time. The same for sport. Take golf, for example, which I know quite well, where people have been able to play. There is evidence they're doing so in numbers not seen for many, many years. The number of rounds being played is way up through the roof. Try ordering a set of golf clubs right now. The chances are the wait time could be four to five weeks, depending on what you want, where people have not been able to travel overseas, go on cruises or even travel interstate. They've changed their habits and started to consume more closer to home. S&P Global Ratings out of the US also recently put out a paper studying those industries best and worst affected by the pandemic. It's done this to try and get a steer on the companies where bad debts might rise fastest and, of course, where credit ratings might deteriorate. Now, what it does notice since March and April this year, there's been a significant fall in the risk associated with what were presumed to be the most risky industries. So airlines, leisure facilities, oil and gas drilling, auto parts and equipment and restaurants. But the risk in these areas does remain higher than it does for most other industries. Airlines are still considered to be the riskiest of all industries, which makes Bain Capital's bid for Virgin Australia and also its dumping of the chief executive Paul Scurra for former Qantas executive and A2 Milk chief executive Jane Hardlicker, all the more curious. Remember, Bain previously said Scurra was their man for the job, as Bain sought approval from creditors and employees to be able to take the airline over. You just wonder exactly what the attitude of the community might be towards Virgin in the future, given that attitude. But I do digress. The reality is that more people, except sadly in Victoria, of course, they're getting used to the new normal. Checking into the restaurants and cafes with QR codes so they can be traced if there's an outbreak, which is all very sensible, relatively simple, and a good way to be able to get back to a a normal sort of standard of living. Because this is all about living and adapting to extraordinary times without a vaccine in the foreseeable future, but trying to get back at least a little bit to the way things used to be. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, 
perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Get a table near the street in our old familiar place. You and I face to face. A bottle of red, a bottle of white. It all depends upon your appetite. I'll meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant. The right person to bring into this conversation is the chief executive of the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association, and that's Wes Lambert, who's been good enough to join me today. Many thanks for your time, Wes. Thank you so much. All right, I, I just want to take it, this industry, I mean, it, it's much bigger than people imagine and therefore it's key in regards to the recovery from the coronavirus. 7% of Australia's workforce, so more than 800,000 people are affected, 47,000 businesses, many of them probably on life support right now, many of them wondering whether they can pay their rent or not and whether they can survive. And, and that's the reason why trying to work out the logistics for this business to survive post the coronavirus is so important right now. It is certainly uh, correct, everything that you're saying. Uh, the accommodation and services industry uh, and the subsector of restaurants, cafes, uh, caterers, coffee shops, small bars uh, was the most hard hit during the pandemic. Uh, at the peak of the pandemic, over 441,000 jobs were lost. Uh, which was just a tremendous amount of all of the accommodation and food service. Uh, and many people don't realize that uh, our industry is actually the engine that's under the hood of Australia. And when that engine is broken or when that engine is not running like it's supposed to be running, it has a ripple effect across commercial property, across the supply chain for farmers, for producers of all of the things that go into the hospitality industry. And Here's a stat that we, uh, we calculated yesterday morning. Since COVID-19 started, Australians have eaten 18 billion meals, of which nearly 2 billion have been in restaurants, and that's down a quarter of what it should have been. It should have been 8 billion meals eaten in restaurants in that time period. And so it is just astronomically unfathomable just how big that the industry actually is and how it touches the daily lives of every Australian every single day. Okay, so then there is also the disparity between the states where you've got New South Wales, which is becoming increasingly open. You've got Queensland relatively open, but not to others coming from, say, New South Wales or Victoria. And then Victoria, its own case, where the authorities have really shut the industry down completely, believing this is the way to try and eradicate or at least eliminate uh, the coronavirus in its community. Uh, and then also suggesting that indoor eating should not be had because the coronavirus, according to its science, spreads more readily indoors rather than outdoors. We would love to actually see the science because in Australia, as I said before, since coronavirus started, there have been nearly 2 billion meals eaten in restaurants and the number of cases that have been reported to have originated at a restaurant 
not just someone passing through a restaurant requiring tracking and tracing. We're talking about an actual infection in a restaurant is around 100. So out of 2 billion meals, around 100 people have actually contracted coronavirus in a hospitality business. Now, you know, I'm a numbers guy. I'm not a scientist. But I would say that that's not very risky, meaning that the risk that we're being told that it's terribly, terribly risky to be eating in a restaurant versus the fact that out of two billion chances there were only a hundred. Well, that's yeah, that, that's like winning the lottery. Okay, so, so at the end of the day, it's ultimately you have states like Victoria that now are in the eight with daily averages and still saying that they're you know, in a disaster or a crisis. And you have states like New South Wales that, uh, you know, have smatterings of cases that are over 10, but yet the premier said that she was on the cusp of opening hospitality businesses even further. I was going to say one other risk that seems to me there for restaurants in particular and pubs and others is that whenever there is an outbreak that occurs and somebody has gone through a restaurant or a, a catering venue, that catering venue is named. What impact does that have on that business? Because it's almost like a, a reputational risk that suddenly you're on the news or out there and it's your venue that's been named and anybody that's been to that venue now has to isolate or go and get themselves a test. No, absolutely. Look, uh, we, we do think that that's, that's certainly uh, in the media when venues <coughs> that um, are uh, named uh, not shamed, but named uh, as having been somewhere where someone visited. Uh, we like to remind people that <clears throat> no one catches COVID-19 from a business. They catch COVID-19 from other people. And so it is quite important that if you have any symptoms, uh, if you have any respiratory symptoms whatsoever, don't go anywhere. Do not risk anyone. Go get a test. Stay home. Make sure that you're not uh, affecting other people and other businesses because it is people that give other people COVID-19. And we want to assure the public that it isn't a business that gives it to you. And so you know, social distancing, uh, businesses that you go to being COVID safe, if you don't feel comfortable as a consumer and you walk into any business, including hospitality, and it's not COVID safe, you know, it's up to you to decide what to do. And it's also up to you to let that business know, you know that they might not be following the best COVID safe principles. But overwhelmingly, the accommodation and food service business, which was allowed to stay open, at least for takeaway and delivery through COVID, has been under the most intense scrutiny for COVID safe plans. And the accommodation food service industry has risen to the challenge. Uh, we exist and we operate under some of the strictest guidelines, uh, not only in the country, but in the world. And guess what? States that have embraced COVID safe plans, those states have very little infection rates. And that's one of the keys here, because I just sit there and think about that poor business that then not only has to completely clean and take the cost of cleaning, but then has its reputation. And for a period of time, people would go, eh, I don't think I'll go there. Not just quite yet. I'll wait for a little while. And so there's, a, as you say, the ripple effect goes on and on because they employ people. There's a whole range of things that take place. So from a, from a strange point of view, yes, there's a public health issue, but there's also the whole, the point of reputation that comes in to this as well. Absolutely. Uh, our members uh, and the industry, uh, businesses that, that were ever named, whether it was uh, for an infection or whether it was a tracking and tracing issue, uh, they've told us that um, it, it takes two or three weeks for them 
to get back to uh, pre-naming uh, sales. Uh, so there is an effect. Uh, it does last a few weeks, but we certainly work very closely with those businesses as well as the health authorities in those states uh, to get the business uh, cleaned and to ensure that you know, it is, uh, continues to be COVID safe uh, and certainly to ensure that the stories are very accurate about whether it was just a tracking and tracing issue or whether or not the case originated there. There's no doubt also that this industry would have been uh, one of the major uh, beneficiaries, that's a strange word to use because they were so badly affected, of JobKeeper uh, allowances and also even of some of, the, um, some of, the, some of the, the benefits that were given out by landlords. Now, uh, the compensation in many ways. So it's one of these points right now that I just wonder, in this area of restaurants, catering, bars, all this type of thing, as to whether really many of the zombie companies that might be out there for the future might actually be in this industry, that when we open up, there are not 47,000 businesses out there, when the harsh reality of companies having to declare themselves insolvent, when the reality of having to go back and pay rent or back pay rent or mortgages or whatever it might be, um, the reality is that some of these businesses may not survive. Well, you make a wonderful point. Um, however, because the hospitality industry, because accommodation service was a highly casualized industry pre-COVID, 61% of employees were casual and 50% of those were working holiday. Um, it's actually not as much job keeper went to the accommodation and food services sector as one may think uh, because many employees just weren't eligible. Uh, in addition, uh, most of the businesses that uh, that have left their premise uh, have already closed. So if a business is attempting to trade through the crisis and they've left their doors open uh, and they're doing the best they can, they will continue to need government support as the domestic borders and the international borders remain shut because historically that made up about 30 cents on the dollar uh, of every tourist dollar spent was in accommodation and food service. So is your sense that once April comes next year, which is when JobKeeper is expected to be phased out, that the government might need to extend that again, simply because then borders will be reopening and there will still be needed to have support for industry while the economy and while Australia sort of gets itself back to, back to some sense of normal? Absolutely, which is why we applauded the, the Treasurer's budget uh, with the job maker scheme, uh, which will allow businesses to uh, subsidize the youth workers between uh, 16 and, and 35. Uh, and also the measures uh, about instant asset write-off uh, when businesses do start to come back and start investing. Uh, and also the apprentice, uh, the $1.2 billion that has been uh, earmarked for uh, apprenticeships and traineeships. Uh, because we've lost so many uh, employees in the industry, uh, to working holidaymakers going back overseas, to uh, industry professionals going into other jobs and other professions uh, because the job that they had pre-COVID in accommodation food service has disappeared, uh, as well as the uh, impossibility of uh, skilled migrants to come into Australia uh, through the COVID crisis, but also the call from the government for uh, skilled migrants to possibly go back to their home countries because there were not going to be any subsidies available to them. 
And then the final part about this, and this is the hope out of this whole story, I think, and that is not only have a whole bunch of businesses survived, but even in these past few days, we've seen consumer confidence suddenly rebound sharply post the budget um, to 27-month highs. And it does show that once economies start to open and once people start to get the idea that they can start to travel around, can start to revisit venues they might have previously gone to, the people are willing to do so very, very rapidly. And that may be very much the hope for not only those businesses in Victoria currently locked down that do survive, but also for the rest of the country once borders reopen. Consumer confidence is so important. uh, And it's why the premiers and the federal government have done such a good job, uh, short of Victoria, uh, in uh, ensuring that consumer confidence and business confidence came back as fast as possible as we approach COVID normal. Uh, it, it will be super important that consumers lead the rebound in our industry. Uh, we encourage consumers to dine out. Uh, Pre-COVID, nearly 40% of meals were eaten out of home. Uh, we would love it uh, to continue or even to go higher than that um, to ensure that the industry recovers. And as you said, there will be a percentage of, of accommodation and food services businesses that don't reopen or that have closed during the pandemic. In any given year, anywhere between 15 and 19 percent of the industry exits anyway. And we've been very lucky that uh, for you know, the past at least two decades that there have been more openings than there were closings. There have been more entries and exits. Well, we know that there's not going to be hardly any entries uh, in all of calendar 20, which falls in two financial years. So that'll be split in the ABS entry exit report. But we know that there'll be very few entries, and we know that there will be more exits. So we do expect that the net exit could be anywhere between 10 and 25 percent. The federal and state governments have stepped up and continued to provide stimulus, which uh, may stave off that uh, dire prediction of 30 percent of the industry falling over. But we do expect that the net will fall somewhere between 10 and uh, 25% in fiscal 20 and then lagging into fiscal 21 um, because of the, um, the effect of COVID going across multiple financial years. And just putting that into numbers again, that's somewhere between 5,000 and 12,000 businesses that are employers and are sustaining themselves and paying rents and all that sort of stuff that may not be around there. And that, again, is one of those ripple effects. The Chief Executive of the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association is Wes Lambert. And Wes, I appreciate your time here on the podcast today. Thank you. So that's it for the Money Minutes for this episode. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Of course, you can always give us your feedback via your podcast app on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon, of course. This has been a Telling Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. Get a table near the street In our old familiar place You and I face to face mm-hmm. A bottle of red A bottle of white It all depends upon your appetite I'll meet you anytime you want
want in our Italian restaurant. 